Shamoya Gardner is the executive director of Strong Schools Maryland. Shamoya is a first-generation American, first-generation college graduate from Miami. Due in part to her identities and experiences as a former educator, she's determined that life is best spent working at the intersection of education, advocacy, and youth development. Since its inception in 2017, Strong Schools Maryland has built a sprawling network of tens of thousands of individual grassroots supporters focused on securing the 2020 passage and 2021 veto override of the Blueprint for Maryland's Future, a law dedicating financial resources and critical policies to create a world-class system of public education in the state of Maryland. Without further introduction, I give you Shamoya Gardner. You were right. One point for you. <laughs> I'm here with Shamoya Gardner. Shamoya is the executive, executive director of Strong Schools Maryland. I'm going to ask you to explain at some point exactly what that means and what that looks like. Um, but if you could, could you give us a little bit of background and maybe how you ended up in that position in the first place? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Feel free to take as long as you want. <laughs> <laughs> it is a, a fairly long story. Um, maybe it's a combination of being fortunate and and really really hardworking that old like American ethic, um, but more realistically speaking, I'm a first generation immigrant kid from from Miami. My family is from Jamaica. Both my mom and dad, though very different parts, um, acclimating to being an American and trying to grow up in my school system as something that was very different from what I experienced at home was interesting but education was always the number one goal. And so at some point in preschool, I realized I wanted to be a teacher. I think it's because they were in charge. They told everyone what to do. And when I got to high school, I discovered policy debate. Hmm. And in college, they came together. And so I realized that I could do some work on education policy, figured I wouldn't really be legitimate if I hadn't had any experience in the classroom. Um, I did do Teach for America. I spent some time in Jacksonville, Florida as a founding science teacher at Valor Academy of Leadership. It was an all-boys public charter. I taught sixth through 10th grade, and I thought I was going to be a Mr. Feeney. It was amazing. Um, mm. I legit had plans to be there on graduation day for every single one, every single one of my boys in my ninth grade class. Um, and I, I still keep in touch with a few of them, but unfortunately. That was a public charter school in Florida, and it's the wild, wild west over there, um, mm -hmm. has been for quite some time uh, prior to DeSantis, believe it or not. And my students who were plucked from public schools all around Jacksonville to attend our charter school um, were then scattered back around the mm -hmm. city when uh, the charter management organization gave up the charter or it was revoked by the state, depending on who tells the story. Um, and that happened halfway through the third year of the school functioning. Um, so essentially, we, our kids were told at Christmas, you know, not to come back in the new year. And even though I'd had experience, um, you know, I'd gotten a policy degree, spent some time in D.C. and Atlanta doing work in, in government and nonprofits, um, I took it very, very personally. And so permanently switched my career out of the classroom. I left Florida, recognizing that it was going to be difficult to get a lot of what I wanted done. Um, and because I needed more experiences, I landed at a political consulting firm in Baltimore a month before the 2016 election. And not long after that, I started working at the local management board, Family League. And we got to do a lot of really cool policy thinking around intergenerational approaches to addressing poverty and making sure that things like birth outcomes for children in Baltimore City uh, were on the up and up. I got my master's degree at American University in 2018, I think. It's so hard to tell time nowadays. Um, and shortly after that, I left to work for Advocates for Children and Youth. It was a statewide nonprofit organization in Maryland dedicated to addressing the multiple policy issues that impact the lives of children and young people across the state. ACY closed um, at some point during the pandemic and prior to that closure in 2020, I left to join Strong Schools Maryland. 
I came on board as a deputy director to Joe Francoviglia, our, um, our former executive director, who is an amazing policy genius that I'm happy to continue working with. And that is how I got here. What I'm doing here is a, a very different story, but it's been a lot of winding turns along the way. And I feel like I've been helped through a lot of connections with great people. That was incredibly smooth. I, I feel like if you asked me to name all my family members, I wouldn't be able to answer that smoothly. <laughs> <laughs> you made a, a very um, intricate story sound very straightforward. I really, really try. So thank you. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> you said you left Florida because you didn't think you could do what you wanted to do there. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to depress you too much, so we don't have to dwell on that for too long. But what what did you have in mind that you wanted to do? You know, facts are facts. My home state is what it is. Um, I wanted to be able to afford opportunity where it did not exist for systemic reasons, for for random chance reasons. I wanted to create opportunities for young people to learn about what they could be and do in the world and get excited. Um, when I was teaching, I recognized that the lens my students had was very provincial. As an example, we got tickets to take the boys to a basketball game at a nearby uh, arena. And more than half of my boys had not been on an escalator before. And we're freaking out, holding on to me, these massive 16-year-old kids. Yeah, it is scary. Knees trembling. Yeah, because we're going super duper high up. These are free tickets for like school kids, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely terrified, making sure mm. that they're sitting next to me in the stands, being unwilling to go and get snacks with their friends because they just hadn't been that high up before. And I don't know, like everyone deserves every kind of opportunity. That shouldn't be the norm. That that's saying that like my students did not leave the north side of Jacksonville. And when I asked myself why, it was because there were systemic issues like a lack of great public transportation. You can't connect the north side of Jacksonville to the south side where I lived in my first year or even over to Riverside, which is significantly closer. Um, and so I was aware of bevy of systems when I was a student in college, there was some conversation amongst the, uh, the State Department of Education to implement race-based achievement standards for students. Hmm. And, and when that's the kind of conversation that's being had, you have a lot of ground to cover before you can get to very cool, low-hanging fruit, frankly, like addressing intergenerational opportunities to ensure that kids do succeed at school. Okay. <laughs> I am buckling up for an education. <laughs> The low-hanging fruit that you just named, adjusting, let me try to recall this, mm -hmm. adjusting intergenerational opportunity. Mm -hmm. What did I miss? What's, the, what's at the end? So there's like creating opportunities that young people can access, and then there's like adjusting intergenerational policy obstacles. Adjusting intergenerational policy obstacles. Mm -hmm. That's difficult for me to say. Is it low? Is that low hanging fruit? Can you explain to me how that would be low hanging fruit? Because I can't, I don't really even know what that means, to be honest. Yeah. And that is probably a problem. Yeah. But, but not like a problem onto an individual person. It's a broad issue that we have to deal yeah. with. Um, and yeah, on the one hand, like systemic inequities are massive, they're looming. It's, it's what we're swimming in every day. On the other hand, it's also some of the lowest hanging fruit because I am firmly of the belief that many of the inequities that we allow to persist in our society are things that we have determined we're okay with. We can go about our days, even if this is true. Um, and it's vital to, to address that, to call that out and, and to be sure that folks are aware of and uncomfortable with that being the status quo. So it's an example of this. Uh, transportation uh, for my students in Jacksonville, Florida, and for here in Baltimore City, where I live and work now, um, transportation is a broad systemic issue. It doesn't care about whether my kids are from Moncrief or, or if they're from over east. And so 
what could we do to address a systemic issue like transportation? One, make sure that transportation systems reach all, part of the, all parts of the city that they're intended to. Data shows that if we actually, in Baltimore City as a specific example, aligned um, the distribution as well as the service patterns of public transportation options like buses to the needs of students and um, commuters like adults who are going downtown to work, we could ensure that students get to school in a timely fashion so that they're not spending two hours commuting from home to school, maybe waking up at 5.30 in the morning to get 30 minutes across the city, not being harassed first thing in the morning, coming to school with a, a terrible outlook because they've already had a bad morning. Um, and essentially that, that gets at many things. One, truancy, which everyone and their mother claims to be concerned about. We wanna make sure students are in school. Well, we make sure that they can get to school. We'll, we'll be in a much better situation, but uh, the attendance factor also has a direct implication on your opportunity to learn and, and whether you really even have access to the great curriculum or high quality teacher that has been assigned to your school. And the thing is, I call this low hanging fruit because if we did this for students, we would also have positive impacts for commuters who rely on those very same buses. Um, making those, what do they call it? I believe it's targeted universalism where you make a policy change that impacts everyone but has disproportionate benefits for people who've been disproportionately marginalized or some way to scale up intervention. Um, and doing things like making sure that public transportation in a major city is of high quality has those additional benefits and is low hanging fruit when you want to address something as complex as like education. Wow. So is that is that something that you have been advocating for? In my own personal career history, yes. And okay. Strong School of Maryland has advocates um, who are our partners who, who work on other issues like transportation. And so help me understand, this might not be something that you're actually in the weeds researching, but what would advocacy, I guess I, I, guess I want to picture what advocacy would look like for a topic like this. Are you researching bus routes? Are you collecting data? Who are you going to with these complaints or with this information? Um, what is the avenue to change for something like this? Because mm -hmm. I would just complain about it. <laughs> I mean, that's a really good first step for an individual. Yeah. It's going like, hey, there's a problem. And then be like, anybody with me? <laughs> that's literally the beginning of a movement. <laughs> okay. It's, it's that simple sometimes. Um, but you know, when you want to sustain things and then actually see results, of course, it's sure. not that simple. Sure. Um, so yes, complaining, speaking up, finding your people, identifying what's already in place and who's who's already identified this as an issue is a really good place to start doing your research. Um, these issues aren't new. They're mm -hmm. systemic. Many people experience them. So it's very unlikely that, you know, if you identify a problem, you're the first person to, to identify it. And that's a fantastic thing. Because then it's very likely already the research is done, maybe some relationships have been built, maybe there's a local legislator who's an ally on your issue because there is um, a base of knowledge that whatever the issue is, is relevant. And from that point, I think my favorite example is what Strong Schools Maryland did. We built a statewide coalition of not only other professional advocates and organizers, but students, teachers groups, including teachers unions, unlikely allies, like folks in the private business industry, um, folks who are at like the Baltimore DC building trades as a part of our coalition and that kind of um, building relationships and strategizing with people in different sectors who are impacted by your issue is a great way to address a, a large systemic problem. Interesting. I, I keep thinking about incentives and, and who would be incentivized to advocate for change. And I guess it would be people who are impacted. How do you begin to turn the tide on people who aren't impacted, but who are a part of the decision making process towards change? Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And I wonder, like, what's an example of an issue where some people are impacted and some are not? Um, any issue that uh, 
would have to do with marginalized or underrepresented groups. Uh, I think the transportation one works well, right? Mm-hmm. You have, I don't know what the numbers are for who, for what percentages of different cities use public transportation, but I would imagine that there are mm-hmm. overrepresentation issues there. Yeah, there absolutely are. Disproportionality, especially as far as negative impacts go, are, are there, they're clear. Um, but I just want to challenge the idea that some people are impacted by these issues and other people aren't. There yeah. are some people who are directly impacted, but ultimately, like sure. I'm a Heather McGee fan here, um, and I'm all about the Some of Us is a book that she released. I don't know how many years ago now. Time is hard, but it's a wonderful read. Um, and the the underlying premise is that all all systemic inequities that we allow to persist persist to the detriment of us all. There's actually no way to separate ourselves out. So if we look at something like transportation, um, we know that not having a functional, affordable, accessible, high quality public transportation system um, diminishes the success of our students. And we may say it's only those students over there or this particularly marginalized group of students, but those are students that Um, in economic terms we're investing in and it does not make good economic sense to invest in schools that are not investing in children and then helping children graduate so that they can make choices about their life and continue to contribute that's the the theory around educating a populace and so if we allow a broken transportation system to mitigate positive results there we as a society suffer Um, and it can be from the worst case scenario, things like crimes of violence where, where people end up dead or, or neglected or, or children are harmed. But it's also, I think, really important to acknowledge like the, the crime that is the loss of the potential in a person. And that, yet again, is a loss to us all. It may not be a loss that's clear. Um, you don't know what you don't have access to if it was never there to begin with or if it was stifled before it could mature. If we take public education out of the equation, we're also just talking about um, the functioning of a a business sector. Can employees get to work on time? Is it practicable? Is downtown rush hour traffic generating more instances of like violence and, and road rage? Are your employees getting to work angry? and not able to do the customer service aspects of their job well. There's so many ripple effects. Um, I feel like I could go on and on. No, that that's fascinating. I'm really curious from an ad- advocacy perspective. I mean, you sound so rational. <laughs> Thanks. Refreshingly rational. But often <laughs> people are n- not that rational. and. Mm-hmm. I imagine they value things in an emotional order. I'm sure I do that. Um, and if you were to speak very rationally at me, I'd say, oh, yeah, I don't want that. And I don't want that. But then if 10 minutes go by and you say, well, what are your priorities today? I would say, you know, it would be sort of be like an emotional list of the things that that have value, you know, that mm-hmm. are more salient to me. How much of your task is sort of um coming up with these rational arguments right Mm. do you then ever think about like all right how do i make this emotionally salient or appealing you know is that just like a really depressing rabbit hole to go down where you're like how do i i've got all these great reasons why they should care but how do i really get them to care you know what i mean i I forget who who gave that ted talk but i think it was uh simon sinek or something and he has this sort of tongue-in-cheek thing where he's he talks about the golden circle and lead with why and he's like martin luther king had a dream like he didn't have a plan you know what i mean we love the idea of a dream but we don't really want to hear about a plan (laughs) and that's the thing right like is it that he had a dream and didn't have a plan or is it that he had a dream and a plan and we weren't really interested after the marching was done Mm. that's the exact issue that we face uh organizationally because what we did in 2021 um was culminate about four years worth of grassroots statewide people building movement efforts to pass the blueprint for Maryland's future, 
which is of course amazing, transformational, once in a generation, and it truly is. It's a multi-billion dollar investment in our public schools, and it has a 10-year implementation timeline. So we're dealing with a, potentially up to three governors, maybe more at this point. We've shifted the timeline a bit. We have so many implementation considerations to be aware of, and Things are going to change along the way. The circumstances of young people in schools and, and school professionals changed immediately after. And frankly, um, with the blueprint, we have had people in our network tell us, you know, I, I really want to go talk to my state legislators. I don't want to go to my board of education meeting. And I understand why, because it's made an unhospitable environment and it's very long and it's hard to figure out what's going on with who's in charge. But the point is that um, it is ultimately my job and my team's job to do that persuading and reminding people of what the why is. Mm. I was laughing when you talked about Simon Sinek because when I was in TFA, my MTLD, my little side coach outside of the, the school, had me read that book, Start With Why. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I don't, I'm not going to pretend to know too much more about Simon Sinek. I will I say, yeah. I think but I just I watched the TED Talk. Excuse me? I lead with why. Yeah. And I, I think we do that in our organizing, in our policy advocacy, because, yeah, sometimes the reality is depressing, but ultimately the truth doesn't change. Mm. If we do not do right by our children, we are screwed in the future. And yes, it might be like ethical in the moment or moral. You might feel it. You may not. But um, there will be some, some diminishment if not. And so... Thankfully, our why is always real. That was heavy. Um, and I thought I was ready to move on, but that is tripping me up. You, I would imagine that you, you think that we haven't been doing right by kids for quite a while. And so those concrete things that you're sort of that, that sort of like unveiling and, and that sort of coming back up, right? Hmm would probably already be happening, right? But I don't know if people are connecting it. Mm. At least in my life, people are like, you know, just grumbling about the city. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then yeah. they'll like, you know, they'll sort of find a scapegoat. It's like, oh, it's, you know, it's his fault. It's her fault. I can't believe this. I can't believe that. The police commissioner, right? Yeah. And I don't think anybody's like, this is probably a lack of educational initiatives, at least in part from 15 mm-hmm. years ago, right? Nobody's. <laughs> no, no one's talking about the $300 million that Baltimore city schools was owed before we passed the blueprint. Mm. Yeah. You're, you're great. And that's because it's easy, right? Like it's fun. It's sexy, exciting to like point fingers at politicians. And sure. Of course. A dramatic game. And it is not fun to go, oh, yeah, this study has been done three times in the last 20 years because no one looks backwards and takes best practices forward. Mm. Um, there's a funny thing about the, the Maryland legislature. Um, if you want to look as if you're advancing an issue in the General Assembly, but you don't intend to, or you do intend to, but leadership told you no, or it costs too much money. You offer up a work group, a study on the, the issue the bill is related to. And theoretically, that allows you to move forward with more evidence in the future. But if you take a look at the things that we're studying, or that study bills have been introduced to, we're still talking about studying financial literacy, hmm. as opposed to like, what's the best way to just implement it for our students? So, yeah, I I don't know. I hope that's a helpful example. No, yeah, that was all very helpful and interesting. When did you start with Strong Schools Maryland? Uh, I came on board as an employee in July of 2020. I had been working with the organization since about 2018. That's actually where Joe and I met. He was organizing and trying to build teams at the time. And I was doing work at the Family League. Is around 2018 when it had started or did it have a history before that? So the Kerwin Commission, I'm sorry, the like the legislation work or Strong Schools Maryland as an organization? Strong Schools Maryland, I'm sorry. 
I'm no, conflating okay. the two. I, you may be, but there's absolutely nothing wrong with that because Strong Schools Maryland was founded in response to the formation of the Kerwin Commission at the state level. Mm. So, in and who 20- is Joe? Oh, Joe Francoviglia. He is currently, I think, the director of government relations for the state comptroller, but he's a former educator, uh, the former AD here, and a pretty fantastic advocate. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, maybe you can talk to them about numbers sometime because we got to generate some revenue to continue fully funding education. <laughs> My guy. I'm yes. happy to talk to him. <laughs> Great. Um, so yeah, Strong Schools Maryland, we, we literally came about because our founder, uh, Dr. David Kornbeck, who's a foreman state superintendent in Maryland, uh, I believe Kentucky, and was a superintendent in Philly for some time had an initiative called, I think, Good Schools Pennsylvania that did advocacy and movement building and, and yeah, supported some initiative. He brought his ideas to Maryland. People he was discussing this possible organization with were like, Good Schools is not good enough. They need mm. to be strong. And there was a very long fight over it, like legitimately. <laughs> that, mm. That's part of our, our founding. Um, and Dr. Hornbeck, throughout his own experience knew that, you know, if this commission, which was officially titled the Commission on Innovation and Excellence in Education, it became called the Kerwin Commission after its chair, Dr. William Britt Kerwin. David said, you know, this commission is gonna do its work. It's gonna have all these great experts give up their recommendations and then it's gonna sit on a shelf if families and students and teachers don't know that this is being talked about in Annapolis. And I mean, that is the, the theory that I think kind of underlies a lot of what we've talked about today, right? Like folks are generally aware of issues, but it's gonna stay very far away unless there's an intentional force mobilizing people. And so the organizing model we used at the time is called the teams of 10 model. You find one person who's interested in education issues. The Kerwin Commission was still studying at that point. We didn't have anything called a blueprint. And we sent them information on a monthly basis, hosted like an hour long phone call. They would have resulting meetings with their teams of about nine other people or whoever they built. So this looked like NAACP education committees. This looked like churches having separate meeting groups where folks would get together and come and talk about education. We've got sororities, youth led groups, et cetera. And those folks would be educated in the course of the month receive an action to complete, write a letter to your state senator, send this email, whatever it was, and then build that sense of political efficacy by taking action. It's a really fantastic model. And it was very successful, not only when we passed the blueprint in 2020, but when we got the veto override in 2021. Do you know where teams of 10, that model came from? Uh, I believe it was a good schools, Maryland model. Hmm. That's a good question for David. Hmm. David, question. Mm-hmm. I am pretty sure that I took all of the civics classes that I was, as I trip over that word, all of the civics classes that I was required to take. And yet, when we first jumped on the call, you mentioned the legislative session. Mm. How How much of an education did you get I guess you started this work in college, but I mean, could you just give me a ballpark of what I knowing only what I probably was told in school and maybe, you know, with a steep forgetting curve, I probably only remember a fraction of that. What would I I mean? How much would I need to learn? I probably what percentage of what I needed to know would I know walking into your job? Less than 1%. Before I answer that, I will say I'd be remiss if I didn't use this as an opportunity to plug the fact that we do trainings on the blueprint and the legislative process. So feel feel no shame at all. Okay. Um, <laughs> and it really depends on who you are. Sometimes we just get wonky people who are kind of into that already. Um, I think the average person might know, you know, the governor is Westmore. They might know Adrian Jones or Bill Ferguson as a speaker or, mm-hmm. or the president of the Senate, but that's about it. And that's okay. That's a fantastic starting point. 
because folks understand at the very least that's where power resides. And that's an important jumping off point when you're trying to engage people around advocacy. Yeah. Can I ask you a question that Mm -hmm. we might need to cut? Yeah. Is that, I mean, look, combined, I forgot to mention, I've also watched House of Cards. That's pretty much (laughs) the extent of my civics. That's the extent of my civics education. Oh, gosh. Do they really? Yeah, right. Do they really? Is that where the power resides? I mean, because you mentioned like that, that's what people need to know. But then that's to say nothing of the the inside baseball. I've worked in schools where, you know, the secretary runs the school, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, like and you figure out within a month, like who you actually need to go to. Yes. Am, am I capital R romanticizing <laughs> government? No not, no, not really. OK, it's a fantastic question because so we see three major sources of power. There is your organizational, your archetype of power. It's your your authority that's given to you by your title. So the governor, mm-hmm. the executive, the legislature, judicial, whatever. Um, you've got financial power. People run things because they got money and that's what capitalism lets do. And then you have people power. Interesting. Is, yeah, the actual movement of people. We all have that people power and we harness it by building those teams of 10. Hmm. Yeah, so... Power does reside absolutely in the legislature and and things that like any person who is vaguely aware off the street would know. Um, And we like to leverage the other types of power to the benefit of public education. And so you mentioned at the beginning of the call that the legislative session ends on Monday. What is that? And what does that (laughs) what does that mean for you? What what does that what does that probably mean for me? Yeah, in a different state, but what ha- I don't know. I assume legislative sessions are going on around me. <laughs> they are. I'm not going to pretend I know when everyone's legislative session is going. They're so sure. different. I hmm. think like in Nevada, they only have it every other year. Um, but in Maryland, we have a 90 day legislative session every year from the second Wednesday in January to the second Monday in April for 90 days. And that's the most wonderful time of the year for you. <laughs> you could call it that, right? It's it's winter. It's post holiday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all that fun stuff. Um, it's a hectic time. Mm. It kind of starts off slowly in January, and it's great because we have a really open public state house. Uh, like visitors are always welcome to the Capitol during session, outside of session. There's free self guided tours. It's very very cool. You might see the governor now. He's out there a lot. Um, but it's right now it's very hectic we're coming down to the wire on a lot of things so as an example this past monday was the the state budget passage deadline so our operating and capital budgets to fund our agencies provide benefits do cool things like have parades etc um that was all hinging on some votes that took place on monday and there were fights about many many details including the state's um, continued investment in public schools. And so help me understand, are you the tip of the spear or somebody advocating on your group's behalf? Do you have, I mean, who's, you said everybody's allowed in there, but who's actually speaking? Mm -hmm. I'd imagine they wouldn't let me speak. Oh, absolutely. I mean, well, if you were a Marylander, sure. Then 100%, you know, it'd be your building. Interesting. So you can totally do this in Pennsylvania as well. Like you, hmm. your tax dollars paid for that building, as well as the salaries of the people who are elected to it. And I should mention that Maryland has citizen legislators. Um, so outside of those 90 days, those are regular people with jobs who still have to answer constituent calls. Interesting. Yeah. And so are you in there actually doing the advocating and the speaking and the the arguing or the fighting, as you said? <laughs> the debating, the testifying. Yeah. Uh, so typically, yes. And I, I think that's primarily because my background was already in policy and policy advocacy. I came on board as the deputy director to do our policy work during session. And I ran that, of course, with the, the support of Joe as my executive director at the time. But that was my portfolio of work. Um, so my master's degree is focused on. And so for me, this year has actually been a very interesting exercise in stepping back from that and trying to fill out more of this executive director role. I'm really happy to say we've brought on two amazing policy folks 
um, Rhea Gupta, who just got her master's at Johns Hopkins, and Maddie Long, who just graduated from the University of Maryland. And they are out there, down there. Maddie, most of all, um, not only talking to legislators, but you know, getting buddy-buddy with staffers, trying to get an understanding of how things function. Because again, using the budget as an example, there are documents that we couldn't find after meetings had happened and we needed to see those documents in order to make decisions and those relationships that the mm -hmm. team builds are, are very important. Anyone has access to that though, if you are a, a resident of that state. Please forgive, continue to forgive my ignorance. No worries. Do decisions, in your opinion, happen on the floor, or do the, or I should say, the majority of decisions do they actually happen in the voting, or is a lot decided going into that moment? And I, where are your energies sort of devoted leading mm. up to that meeting, or are you sort of like a lot actually is determined in that that conversation? Yeah, so there, there's a lot to the state legislative process for floor sessions where you've got like whole chamber in there. One, it depends on which vote you're on, but for the most part, as you get to like those really hectic votes, those third reader, which is um, right before the bill really passes for real, for real, those votes tend to, you know what the outcome is going to be because votes would have been secured. I don't, again, think that's necessarily a bad thing because there is an entire process prior to that. It is how accessible that process is to the layperson that I have a lot of question about because there are thousands of bills introduced in the legislative session every year. And 90 days is not a significant amount of time to get the bill written out properly, introduce it, assign it to a committee, have a hearing, have a subcommittee meeting about it, bring it back to the full committee for a vote, bring it to the floor for a vote. If you're on second reader, anyone can introduce amendments. So you don't necessarily know what's going to happen there. Um, and you could talk to your legislator about introducing an amendment you're in favor of right then and there. Sometimes it happens if you listen for keywords and party issues, you can kind of tell how folks are going to vote. Um, and it's, that's again, just one side. In Maryland, our bills have to cross over to the other chamber. So if the House introduces and works on a bill and passes it, the Senate has to go through the exact same process with that bill and pass it and then send it back to the House mm. so that they can address whatever changes have been made and then send it on to the governor for signing. And so um, the short answer is it depends and there's always a way to get involved. When I was poking around on your website, And I mentioned this with this it is very intuitive, but you had these sort of, I think, three or four goals, mm. but they were they weren't necessarily bills. Right. They were areas of of interest. Mm -hmm. Could you just remind me what those areas of interest are before I ask my follow up question? <laughs> I'm going to have to, like, remind myself. What goals I, I can. I, I have not pulled up <laughs> if you want me to. Sorry. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, priority one, supporting the implementation of the blueprint uh, for Maryland's future. Priority gotcha. two, strong student-oriented community schools. And three, legislative, I'm sorry, uh, safe learning environments for all. Yes, definitely. So our legislative priorities, gotcha. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're not specific bills for a couple of reasons. Um, one, we did not have bills written at the time that we set our legislative priorities. That is a thing that we will grow into doing as we have very cool policy staff now who can help us do that. Um, and you work on that in what we call the interim, the time that we're not in session. And essentially most bills that are pre-filed, written before session starts, so they're ready to go on day one, have to be submitted by November. Um, so we did not do that. We are really committed to a couple of issues and there's like a particular theory of practice that we have around our organizing work in a way that we've advocated for the blueprint law that um, is also aligned with our legislative priorities. So the first one's kind of obvious. We want the law to be fully implemented. We had an issue with our last major statewide education reform where the legislature 
cut funding limited its growth to inflation instead of doing what was actually recommended by that commission. Um, so we're just trying to defend the law, both in its funding and of course its implementation. There are a couple of issues with implementation, especially related to pre-kindergarten. There simply aren't um, enough providers in various parts of the state to make it feasible that all children have access to the slot that they need. And honestly, the state has a lot of work to do to bring in private providers and make it a process that they're interested in participating in. Um, so lots of technical things to be worked through there. Our second priority is really focused on the community school strategy. If you know anything about the blueprint, um, you know that it is a major pillar of the law. We're investing hundreds of millions, and I, I'd probably say at this point, billions of dollars into the strategy every year, and it's a beautiful strategy. It is a fantastic thing. I'm so very excited about it. But our concern is if we do not implement community schools with fidelity, we are not going to see the benefits we should. And because it is such a vast investment and because it has a particular theory, um, the folks who are doing that work must understand it. We work the session to codify language. And what's a good example of the importance of this language shift? Community schools have to have assessments that the community school coordinator develops and administers to the school community, students, families, educators, and literal people in the surrounding communities. It's an asset and needs assessment. The state refers to it only as a needs assessment and already has the perspective that the community is being served just kind of need things from the state and don't have much to offer. But the entire plan and the theory behind a community school strategy is that the community has access to resources and if partnerships can be made to make those resources available to students, their families and the school community, those non-academic barriers will stop hindering academic success. So we wanna protect that language because implementation is hard. And our, our third priority, it is what it says, but we're trying to address a lot of issues with it. Broadly, we'd like to see the use of restorative practices as, in, as a matter of not just handling school discipline, but in how schools function. Restorative practices is about building relationships and understanding and repairing harm because that's just a natural part of what happens in relationships. We hurt one another, we don't always mean to. But the point is to repair it and build the relationship back stronger. Um, so we'd like to see that, but we'd also just like to see the use of things like punitive discipline, suspensions, expulsions, incarcerations of students go down. We want to see students who identify as LGBTQ+, especially trans students, protected in schools. Um, and essentially, we want to ensure that anyone who is marginalized and has some kind of barrier maybe transportation getting in the way of the success as an advocate that can ensure their school is a welcoming, inclusive place for them. So not that many things? You know, just a little bit. Only how, how much coffee do you drink <laughs> to have the energy? Oh, none today. Do, uh, do, but do I you... do like a black iced coffee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, gosh. That's so many things. How much research does your team do in sort of figuring out what, how to best support these things or, you know, if the research changes around those things or if different evidence comes out? Mm -hmm. We have the benefit that there was a commission whose work forms the foundation of our advocacy. It's, it's very well researched. It's all pretty much empirical evidence. So as much as we've had to fight for the blueprint, we haven't had to fight a lot of people on policy. Okay. There's some issues related to like the teacher career ladder. And I think those are fair issues that labor unions are still working to address with their local governments and more power to them. But um, these are our good policy ideals. And so what we see more of is um, the layering of complex issues that we try to absorbed by calling it building on the blueprint. The blueprints for Maryland's future was never intended to be like a panacea for all issues in public education. It's literally a framework to build upon. 
And unfortunately, a lot of people don't see it that way. Um, so that's reflected in our, our legislative priorities, but also in what we hear from our, our team leaders. So we have a brilliant organizer. Her name is Maya Bond. She's a super badass. Um, and her job is to build relationships with and help technically develop the people in our network so that they're equipped advocates for issues in their communities. And so, of course, that they know about what's included in the blueprint. And they come back to us and they tell us things like, my school system is not counting or seeking supports for students experiencing homelessness. Is that technically a blueprint issue? No, but it has direct implications for the ability of all students to succeed. And so, so we address it that way. To that end, um, Rhea does a, a fantastic job conducting research into things like reports that are required to be submitted as a part of the blueprint. And that helps us assess whether, you know, we're actually implementing this thing with fidelity or if school leaders are just checking boxes. Gosh. Huh. Are there any instances very recently of, of victories that you're excited about, small or large? Yeah, actually. Um, my communication specialist would probably like be upset with me for this. So the budget, we got $900 million for the blueprint in this upcoming fiscal budget. And that means the year that starts on July 1st is fiscal year 2024. It'll run until June 30th, 2025. We have $900 million as a down payment for the blueprint. So to contextualize this, um, the blueprint was only fully funded up until fiscal year 26. So it has to be implemented until fiscal year 2032. And it was only fully funded until fiscal year 26. The legislature has been very clear that it's their intent to come back and fully fund the blueprint. They're just trying to figure out how to generate that revenue at this time. And so our governor, Wes Moore, made good on his campaign promises to fully fund and support the blueprint. His budget included $500 million. And then the House of Delegates led the way um, championing an additional 400 million and got the Senate on board. Wow, how so, does that compare to years past? You, or It's hard to compare to years past because last year we thought we were fully funded until fiscal 27. And then hmm. the state found 110,000 students who were eligible for Medicaid who we weren't counting. It's complex stuff. <laughs> that's why you need advocates to stay on top of these wonky issues. Yeah. But, but yeah, we have an issue correctly assessing the number of children who are experiencing poverty in Maryland. And most of them live in Prince George's County, Montgomery County, the Eastern Shore and Southern Maryland. And we need to be able to count them so that we can resource their schools. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, part of me is still a little hung up on why there's a different uh, fiscal calendar. I don't know if I actually know the answer to that. I, I think I just like to confuse people. I think I looked it up once and I think it had something to do with um if you don't mind me, why are fiscal no, go for it. I think it had something to do with the founding of the country, but we'll, we'll find out in a second. I wouldn't be surprised. Not with this great state. It's a long answer, so I'm going to have to. I thought it was going to be immediate. Like, you're right, Kevin. <laughs> okay, I'll have to let you know. What's the deal with fiscal years? Yeah. Yeah. Well, ChatGPT gave me a four paragraph answer. So <laughs> I don't know if I need all that nuance. Just get yeah. to the point. Yeah. Um, okay. If you don't mind a, a final signing off question, I'm aware of the time. Thank you, by the way. Oh, yeah. So that's a victory you're really excited about. And congratulations. Anything that you're really hopeful for or excited about looking forward? A lot of things. Sure. Um, but because of time constraints, I'd be happy to come on and talk about them again. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll say that generating revenue is something that I'm really excited about us doing. 
many of the people in our network are well-versed in the five pillars of the blueprint, early childhood education, quality and racially diverse teachers and leaders, new college and career readiness pathways, more resources for all students and governance and accountability. But none of that tells us anything about how we are going to fund our schools in a few years. And we know that top economic times are ahead one way or another, um, we're about due. And so we are joined up with a full coalition of folks called the Fair Funding Coalition, led by the Maryland Center on Economic Policy and some others. And we are trying to figure out ways for the state to generate revenue to fund not only education, but other issues like transportation um, and the general needs of Marylanders. Things like closing corporate tax loopholes, um, you know, levying the appropriate tax increases on millionaires and billionaires because Maryland's a very wealthy state. And so we're gonna we're gonna pick up that fight and mm. that'll be what we'll be talking about probably a year from now. Okay. Yeah. How can people learn more or or get involved if they want to? Uh strongschoolsmaryland.org where strong schools MD I think on Instagram and Twitter and Strong Schools Maryland on Facebook. Um, and if you can't find us that way, look up Dave Heilker. He's a very cool guy and our communication specialist. He does amazing graphics. And um, yeah, it's the best way to get in touch. Can connect you with any of our team members if you have questions about policy issues, want to start a team or just help us spread the word. Awesome. I, and I'll be sure to include some links in the description of the episode. Awesome. Awesome. I'm going to ask if you don't mind, I'll cut the recording in a second after I sign off. Uh, and then um, if you just hang around for a couple seconds after that, I'd appreciate it. Cool. But Shamoy Garner, thank you very much. Thanks for your time. And thank you, of course, for what you're doing. Thanks for having me. Of course. <laughs>